Governor DeWine wants to increase the age to buy all tobacco products, including e-cigarettes, to 21 in Ohio. If someone gets to be the age of 21 and they have not become nicotine addicted, the odds are overwhelming this will never happen in their lifetime. I swear, when I started the show, it was not my intention to foist upon listeners an endless stream of depressing subjects. But given the challenges of healthcare in Ohio, I admit it. Many of these episodes do focus on our state's inability to move the needle on key markers of public health. I'm sorry to say that today's episode is no exception. As we focus on the state of tobacco and e-cigarette use, policy and politics in Ohio. With that said, if you have ideas for spotlighting exciting developments, good stuff that's happening, please do let us know. Hopefully, whether we're addressing depressing subjects or focusing on the great things Ohioans are doing in their communities, we can enjoy the humanistic impulse of it all, taking seriously the idea that we can and should do better in Ohio. Before we turn to today's main focus, though, this week we're going to try out a new feature for the show, which is a roundup of important developments in healthcare in Ohio. We thought it'd be nice to share with listeners just a few news items we've been following since the last episode, all of which are likely to be the focus as well of future interviews we'll be doing. In some cases, the items we'll include in the news roundup will serve as follow-ups to recent conversations we've had. For example, at the top of our news roundup is a follow-up to our last episode, which is that SB 23, the six-week abortion ban, or the so-called heartbeat bill, was passed by the General Assembly and signed into law on April 11th by Governor Mike DeWine. The bill includes an exception to save the life of mothers, but does not include similar exceptions for rape or incest, two exceptions that have tended to be consensus items even among anti-abortion groups for decades. Proponents of this legislation, like Ohio Right to Life, have made clear that they're hoping that the Ohio heartbeat bill, the six weeks ban, is going to be one of the major steps toward getting the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Second, a piece of legislation we'll be watching closely as it comes down the pipeline is HB 165, introduced by Representatives Beth Liston and Tavia Galanski. The bill would require the State Board of Education to adopt new health education standards for grades kindergarten through 12. The bill gives the State Board the option of following the American Association for Health Education's most recent health education standards, or creating standards of their own based on the association's guidelines. These standards are currently set by individual school boards, not the state, which creates a wide variation in the health education offered in Ohio schools. Listeners who want to learn more about this should read HB 165 and check out the excellent research being done by the Center for Community Solutions on it. Last but not least, the Health Policy Institute of Ohio, one of the most important sources for ongoing healthcare news in our state, released its annual Health Value Dashboard. The dashboard is a composite measure of Ohio's performance on population health outcomes and healthcare spending. Overall, according to HPIO, Ohio ranks 46th out of the 50 states, meaning that Ohioans are overall less healthy and spend more on healthcare than those living in other states. Three major findings from the dashboard are worth noting. First, Ohio spends most of its healthcare dollars on costly so-called downstream interventions, interventions when it's too late, interventions that could have been prevented. Second, tobacco use and addiction, which is the issue we're going to talk about at length today, are also driving poor health outcomes in Ohio. And third, according to the HBIO report, not all Ohioans have the same opportunity to be healthy. For example, Ohioans with disabilities, Ohioans who are members of racial or ethnic minorities, have lower incomes, have lower educational attainment, or members of sexual or gender minorities are more likely to face multiple barriers to health. Well, that's the news roundup for the beginning of May. Let us know what you think of it. 
I'm really excited to tell you about today's guest, Micah Berman. Micah is the Associate Professor of Public Health and Law at The Ohio State University's College of Public Health and at the Michael Lee Moritz College of Law. His research explores the intersection between public health research and legal doctrine. And he's the co-author of The New Public Health Law, a transdisciplinary approach to practice and advocacy. He's currently funded by the National Cancer Institute to conduct research that supports the FDA's regulation of tobacco and by the Ohio Department of Medicaid to evaluate the impact of Ohio's Medicaid expansion. I asked Micah to talk with me about the state of tobacco and e-cigarette policy in Ohio. He joined me on a rainy but nice spring morning in Columbus, and if you listen carefully, you can even hear some birds. Okay, now to my conversation with Professor Micah Berman. Micah Berman, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you and I've had conversations for a while now, probably a few years on and off about various things. I've always been really interested in your research. So I'm glad to actually have a chance to sit down and get you on record, do a little recording in a more formal way, and also share some of your expertise with the people who um, listen to this podcast, uh, mighty as they may be. So I, I wonder if we can just start a little bit have you just kind of give us an overview of where you think things are in Ohio with tobacco policy in particular. Um, I note that America's Health Rankings has Ohio around 43 out of 50 right now. Um, 21% of Ohioans report smoking um, as opposed to a 17% national average. Those are America's Health Rankings numbers anyway. Do these numbers tell us most of the story? Is the story more interesting than that? Is it worse than that? Like, can you give us a little bit of a sense of what the landscape is like? Well, as you said, uh, we're not doing super well in, in terms of smoking rates. Um, the uh, Truth Initiative, which is a, a national nonprofit, put out a report earlier this year talking about uh, Tobacco Nation, as they referred to it, the kind of the section of the country where the smoking rates are the highest. And you wouldn't necessarily think that that includes Ohio, but it does. Our, our smoking rates are up there with, with some of the states that are doing the, the worst in this category. What I think is really uh, interesting about Ohio is that Ohio was on the right track and was doing really well for a number of years when they were taking the money from the the large settlement agreement with the tobacco industry and, and funding a very strong statewide tobacco control program that actually was a national model. And the smoking rate was coming down rapidly. The use smoking rate was coming down rapidly. But, but essentially, as soon as that funding went away, the smoking rates went right back up. So it's a, essentially a funding issue that the, the state didn't replace that funding or? The state didn't replace that funding. And, and what happened also was in 2007, uh, Ohio, well, 2006 was the election. 2007, Ohio put in place its uh, smoke-free law for the entire state. And it was actually one of the first Midwestern states to do that. And that uh, was tremendously in fact, effective in terms of protecting people from secondhand smoke. But I think a lot of policymakers saw that that measure was done and sort of thought we had checked tobacco off of the list and now we could move on to other issues and uh, it doesn't exactly work that way. So is there a tendency in tobacco policy and smoking policy to pass you know, establish policies that you can check the box that you can say, okay, we did something and it looks good, but might not actually be the most effective? Right. I mean, what you're talking about the smoke free law, it was 
extremely effective in terms of protecting people from that secondhand smoke exposure, but it doesn't mean that you have taken the issue of, of smoking and smoking rates uh, off the table. That's, you know, we have a tobacco industry that's spending about a million and a half dollars a day uh, in Ohio to promote their product, and you've got obviously new middle schoolers and new high school students uh, every year, and, and most people start smoking in, in those ages. So if you're not uh, keeping the pressure on, um, you're going to have a problem. So it's not quite a Buckeye football coach salary a day, but uh, close. Uh, close to it. Yep. <laughs> what, what about vaping? I mean, everybody's talking about that. And I know that's a little bit of a shift in your work over the last couple of years or people who are interested in this policy area. Um, where, where are we with that now? What is happening with vaping is is truly remarkable and scary. The uh, I don't think unless you have kids in middle school or high school, you not might not be aware of of what's going on with the emergence of Juul, uh, which is a you know, particular type of uh, a brand of a vaping product that looks very much like a USB drive. And Juul has been driving just a rapid, rapid increase in uh, youth. Uh, e-cigarette use, youth, youth vaping. Um, what we saw was a 78% increase just uh, in the last year from 2017 to 2018. And, and that uh, it's probably slowed somewhat, but that increase um, has continued. So there's a, a, there was a conversation for just a bit about um, you know, harm reduction around Juul. And I think it confused a lot of people because the initial reaction seemed to be, oh, it's better than smoking. Um, but it's from what I've looked at anyway, it seems like the conventional wisdom now is that it might actually be a better alternative for smokers if that means that they're going to stop smoking. But for kids, it's very bad. That's right. You, you've seen the shift in Juul's advertising. So when they came out, they marketed themselves actually using a lot of the same approaches that the, the tobacco industry had used in the past to make their products look sexy and glamorous and, and so forth. Sexy and glamorous like a USB. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, you know, with a sort of high-tech spin on uh, that old tobacco marketing that, you know, this is the new, the new cool thing. Right. Um, but um, uh, now, now that they've sort of been called out on that, they have shifted their advertising. So you might actually see them in the newspaper talking about how their, their product is great for, uh, for current smokers. But uh, I, I think what we're seeing is that the number of kids who are starting on these products is is absolutely dwarfing the number of adults who, who might be using them to help quit. So it took a long time with the, the, with the tobacco industry to get them to acknowledge, you know, to the extent that they ever did, really what was going on behind the scenes. It seems like at least with Juul and with these kinds of e-smoking um, products that it's happening faster, at least because people are on top of it. Um, do you think that this is a fast-moving policy area that they're gonna? We're not gonna have a fifty-year look back or a hundred-year look back like we had with the tobacco industry. Well, what's what's a little bit uh, scary and concerning is that the the e-cigarette industry and the tobacco industry are becoming the same thing. Um, Juul now has has Altria, the largest tobacco company, as one of its major investors, uh, and so you know it seems like they are sort of hedging their bets as smoking rates go down. Now they have another uh, product that can get kids addicted to nicotine. Um, so it's, uh, I think this is going to be an ongoing, uh, ongoing struggle uh, to uh, protect kids from, from whatever the next phase of this is. 
So I saw the governor, DeWine, now supports uh, changing the tobacco purchase age to 21, and there seems to be you know, legisl- like bipartisan legislative support for that. There's national movement there. I saw the Senate Majority Leader McConnell. He also now supports this. Uh, do you think that here in Ohio, are, there are poli- there, there's, there's policy movement that's you know, worthy of the, the, the crisis that you see around whether it's vaping or whether it's tobacco? It's similar to what I said before, that in, in tobacco policy, you need to be really careful that you're doing things that are effective and not just checking the box. And um, I think that Tobacco 21 can be an extremely effective policy to uh, reduce uh, youth access to, to tobacco products, uh, including uh, vaping products, but it has to be done the right way. And what I'm, I'm concerned about is that I think we have a lot of legislators and, and the governor who I think you know, has, has the right intentions and the, the, his, uh, he's actually been very supportive of, of tobacco control measures over the years, uh, but it has to be done right uh, or it's not going to work. So what's something that's going on in this policy area that maybe people don't really know? I mean, you're in the weeds with this stuff, so you probably see it differently. I, what do you think would surprise people to know about what's going on in our state? Uh, Well, let me just continue talking about that Tobacco 21 policy for a second. As you said, we have Mitch McConnell, who is now supporting a Tobacco 21 policy, and and that should probably be a pretty big red flag uh, in that, you know, he has been um, a strong supporter of the tobacco industry um, for a very long time. And, And what it seems to be happening is that the tobacco industry and, and Juul, the, the vaping industry, is is trying to get out in front in terms of policy and, and do something that sounds like it's effective but actually won't hurt their bottom line too much. And that is a longstanding uh, approach that the tobacco industry has used for uh, decades. So I'm, I'm very concerned that that's what we have going on here, even though some of the headlines might sound like we're making a lot of progress. Right. Like, and that's super depressing, right? Because you, you just did a jujitsu kind of move with policy, which is be careful when you see mainstream politicians who have been in the pocket of various industries for a long time, all of a sudden getting behind something. Before you get too excited, you, sh- you might look to see if it's real. Right. And, you know, if you think about, you know, going all the way back to the Surgeon General's warnings that were, that are on the side of cigarette packs, uh, we often think of that as being a major public health advance, but it also was engineered by the tobacco industry. They saw that if they didn't get out front and propose something, that stronger regulation would be coming. And so they, um, they agreed and essentially wrote the legislation that put, you know, pretty weak uh, and small warnings on the side of cigarette packs. So you've talked a a good deal here about policy issues that you worry don't really have teeth that might be more, as you said, checking a box. What are some policy ideas that you really support, but you pretty much know would be politically impossible or would be, you know, what are the far-fetched ideas that excite you, even if they might be tough lifts? Uh, well, I think the the focus on on e-cigarettes is is important to keep on top of, but I don't think we should uh, lose focus on cigarettes either, which are the main driver of tobacco-related death and disease. And I think we are starting to see a shift in the way that uh, people are thinking about and talking about tobacco policy. So at, at the national level, the FDA uh, has at least put on the table the idea of reducing nicotine levels in cigarettes to to non-addictive levels 
uh, which would be absolutely transformative. Mm -hmm. And at the local level, you are starting to see local boards of health, uh, local city councils. Um, think about, you know, why is it that this, the, you know, the most deadly consumer product ever created is available on every corner. Um, can't we um, do something about you know, the fact that cigarettes are on, uh, you know, there are 30 times more uh, cigarette retailers than there are Starbucks in this country. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, people are starting to think about, can we restrict cigarettes to adult only locations? Can we strictly limit the number of uh, retail outlets that are there and actually a lot of the things that that states are doing and, and thinking about in terms of marijuana policy that are sort of common sense for reducing harm if you're going to have a dangerous product being sold uh, those are things that we could easily be doing with tobacco products but we don't because um, you know there are there, there's the status quo to deal with there are people who are making money off of these products now and so you know changing the way that things work now is, is difficult but people are starting to have that conversation so I know you've done some research also specifically, you know, in tobacco use here in Columbus, also um, in Appalachian counties throughout Ohio. Tell us a little bit about that research. So I am part of uh, what we call the Center for Excellence in Regulatory Tobacco Science at Ohio State uh, and, and have tremendous colleagues who have been, been doing all sorts of studies uh, around Ohio, both in, in Columbus and in the Appalachian part of the states, and also in, in laboratories uh, at Ohio State. So lots of different types of studies going on, looking at adolescent tobacco use, looking at adult tobacco use, looking in the labs, like going inside people's lungs, uh, pulling in the psychology department and looking at, at how people respond to warning. So there's a lot of uh, exciting research going on. Um, I'll, I'll just say a couple things in terms of what we've found. Um, and what is not not so surprising that there are a lot of disparities out there in terms of um, tobacco marketing. So what we're seeing sort of reflects um, what what you see around the country in terms of um, tobacco advertising and tobacco retailing in general being much more prevalent in, in low-income areas and minority areas, also in, in rural parts of the state. Um, and then, uh, you know, among adults, um, we're seeing a lot of people trying uh, e-cigarettes, but um, we're not, at least in our data, not seeing uh, a lot of successful transitions mm -hmm. away from cigarettes to uh, e-cigarette use. So, so those are, are kind of two things we're going to be watching uh, going forward. So, what um, you know, how are people using these products, and how successful are they on the adult side in terms of are using them to quit, and then on the youth side. Uh, you know, how is the marketing continuing to evolve for these products and are kids starting to use these products? And, and um, one of my colleagues, Megan Roberts, um, did a, a survey this year that showed that more than a quarter of incoming OSU freshmen said they had used Juul in the past month. You know, another thing that we're looking at is the role of flavors, and, and that's something that the FDA is taking a look at. So the FDA... Um, has been pushing Juul, and Juul has now voluntarily taken some of the flavors out of retail locations, but uh, you can still find their menthol flavor, mm -hmm. uh, which is popular with youth, and, and youth can still get access to those products online. Beyond the research, you know, as you're just going about your day here in Columbus and throughout our state, what drives you nuts? Like, What do you see where you just say, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening? I mean, do you, you must see things in the tobacco uh, vaping sort of space 
differently or notice things. I mean, I, I know I see, you know, you drive past a car and the windows are down and there are kids in the back seat, you know, and they're smoking. Like things like that make me crazy. But what do you notice? Well, I'm tying it into the work that I do on the, the legal side. So my, my legal research uh, over the past few years has focused a lot on the, the First Amendment side uh, and you know how advertising uh, can be regulated. And the courts have made it extremely difficult to regulate commercial advertising of, of any type. And so it's, it's the advertising that tends to really stand out to me. And, and you know, if you go to you know, the gas station, for example, you will see um, advertising sometimes even right on the pump handle. Mm-hmm. You'll see it at, you know, kids eye level. If you go into the convenience store there, it's, you know, see it advertising at the, at the bottom level. And I, and I think if you really want to drive yourself nuts is go to other countries and compare the advertising regulations there uh, to what they are here. So I mean, there are a lot of countries in the world where there are um, display restrictions. So tobacco products cannot be displayed in retail settings. They can be sold, but if you want to buy them, you have to specifically ask for them, and then they you know, tell them what product you want, and then they can be sold. But if you go in any store here, you see this, what we call the power wall, of you know hundreds and hundreds of... Um, packs of tobacco and those packs really are and people just sort of are used to them but they those packs really are a form of advertising and actually what we're even seeing in our osu data is the more time kids spend being exposed to advertising in retail locations the more likely they are to smoke it's a strange kind of uh, way to think about freedom isn't it <laughs> And it's not, um, I don't want to get too far into the First Amendment weeds, um, but that's that's not really what the court was thinking about when it started to create protections for um, for commercial speech. They weren't thinking about, about harmful and deadly products like tobacco. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me about this, and um, we'd love to have you back on the podcast sometime soon. Thank you. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner and Kyle Rosenberger. You can subscribe to Prognosis Ohio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. As always, we welcome your emails to prognosisohio at gmail.com and your tweets and follows to at prognosisohio. Your feedback is appreciated and helpful. If you have ideas for themes and guests, we'd also love to hear them. See you next time.